2: I'm Julia Borston and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
3: Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fortin, and Deirdre Bosa. This hour, higher for longer, a couple of Fed officials with some hawkish commentary as hedge funds rush to rally at the second fastest pace in a decade. We'll debate the case for a new 50 basis point hike. Then a dash of doubt, DoorDash shares unable to hold some gains despite an upbeat outlook. We'll hear exclusively from CEO Tony Shu this hour. Salesforce to settle? Sources tell David Faber that Salesforce and activist Elliott Management may soon reach a deal. That's ahead of our exclusive interview with former Microsoft CEO and LA Clippers owner, Steve Ball. Palmer,
4: live from the NBA Tech Summit. John? Yeah, but Carl, we're going to start with what you mentioned first the Fed and a higher for longer messaging. Fed Presidents Jims Bullard and Loretta Mester making it clear a 50 point rate hike is back on the table for
5: next month. Our Steve leisman has the details. Steve? Yeah, John, uh, Marcus reacting to hawkish Fed speak yesterday and bracing for an onslaught of speeches next week. More than a quarter of the Federal Market Committee is uh, scheduled to take the podium next week to we'll talk about the economy. Along with minutes of the February meeting on Wednesday, we should learn just how much support there is for that 50 basis point increase at the March meeting that's coming up. Both Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester and St. Louis's Jim Bullard said they supported a half point hike at the February meeting and wouldn't rule one out for the next one. Uh, All of this, the effect in the Fed Funds futures market has been to move the pricing for the peak funds rate near a new high of 529 for the August contract and to bring the year-end pricing almost directly now in line with the Fed's own average forecast. Of five thirteen next week we have New York Fed President Williams on Wednesday, uh, Collins from Boston, Mester from Cleveland, and Jefferson and Fed Governor Waller. They'll be in New York City on Friday. We have the uh, Chicago University of Chicago Booth School's Monetary Policy Conference coming up. The conference, the comments of Mester and Bullard show the Fed is not unanimous in the apparent new regime of responding to economic data through quarter-point hikes as the data come in. At least some still want to front-end load rate hikes. The market continues to price in a quarter for March. I think that's the most likely bet to go with, at least for now. Guys? Steve, why? Um, Because the the last two
4: major data points that we got, at least in my mind, the uh, jobs report and the CPI number, I guess you could throw the PPI print in there too, would suggest hey, a, a 50 uh, basis point hike should not be off the table at all. So why would they continue with 25 when they told us over and over again that the, the threat of letting inflation get out of control was so high?
5: Good question, Sean. I think the issue is that they they wanted to downshift into something that was not as extreme for two reasons. One is they, there was a sense that perhaps they'd gotten ahead of the issue or at least come equal to the issue of inflation through those big 75 basis point rate hikes, the four that they did over the course of the summer. Um, the other reason is that they were afraid or have some concern about perhaps over-tightening. So an idea of moving down to a quarter would make it more uh, responsive to the data and also leave that regime of front-end loading. If you look at the history here, um, uh, John, of this January 24 Fed funds contract, the markets come a very long way to where the Fed is right now. It is now sort of what's the word? Implementing the tightening that the Fed had wanted to be out there. So now they're in line. If you take a longer look at this thing, it's really quite extreme. Back uh, when this contract was first launched, it was like a 3% outlook for 2023. Now it's five and change, sir.
0: Yeah, I mean, things have changed really quickly. And still, you know, mixed messaging from the data. Steve, I know, you know, they look primarily and first and foremost at CPI and labor. But how about things like credit card debt? I mean, we just found out from the New York Fed that it has hit a record high. The average rate is near 20 percent. That's a nearly 40 year high. How much do they take that into account?
5: Yeah, I mean, Deirdre, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. I think that's the way <laughs> to think about these things. because The data coming in is so extreme. The Philly Fed was is screaming recession. The jobs numbers are screaming a buoyant economy. The retail sales numbers look good. And then, as you point out, those debt numbers, those credit card numbers, make me think that the consumer is reaching uh, and, and taking risks in, with high high interest rates in order to maintain standard of living amid inflation. So, it's very hard to puzzle all this out. The best way I like to explain it is, we're, we're still in, in the middle of this transition from the uh, uh, COVID and and the lockdowns and restoring the economy. And so we're going to have days like this where it's going to be uh, recession one day and buoyant yeah. economy the next. <laughs>
0: And that's what we're seeing today, certainly risk-off. Uh, Steve Leisman, thank you very much. Right. So you got to puzzle out the macro. you also got to puzzle out the micro. So let's get to the growth bounce that we have been seeing and talking about. Bitcoin, uh, though it's risk-off today, larger scheme of things, it's back near 25,000, up more than 40% on the year. Other crypto-related names, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, surging 80 and and 100% respectively in 2023. Um, so, Kate Rooney, what is driving this rally? I mean, I feel like, again, you should give me the same answer
6: that Steve gave, which is if you're not confused, then you're not really doing this right. Exactly. It has been a bit of a head scratcher. I love that line from Steve D. But one thing helping crypto and some of these high growth stocks is inflows from individual investors. We've seen this week. Crypto-related names like Coinbase and MicroStrategy tend to attract individual investors really chasing momentum. They tend to also see relatively low institutional interest. So some new data from Vanda Research this week, shows the highest level of inflows ever from retail investors. That hit a record, net inflows topping $1.5 billion. And among the top stocks they were buying, Coinbase is on that list. Chris Brendler over at DA Da Davidson downgraded Coinbase after the stock, pretty much doubled in the face of what he told me was objectively bad news for Coinbase, referring to some of the regulatory crackdowns we've seen out of D.C. Analysts also note that short covering has extended this rally. Coinbase right now has about 24 percent of the float or the available shares essentially sold short. MicroStrategy, 34 percent. Silvergate, that's a crypto-related bank, sees 73 percent of the available shares sold short, despite tanking yesterday that crypto bank still up about 20 percent on the week. Bitcoin, meanwhile, has seen its own resilience in the face of those negative headlines. It's got the opposite dynamic going on. So Barclays points out a boom in trading volume in recent weeks says it's mostly institutional interest while retail still is really sitting on the sidelines. There has been a bit of optimism that the worst could be over on the regulatory front. In terms of what's coming out of D.C., there's also been some bullish activity on the option side of crypto markets, Steve.
0: OK, broadening this out beyond crypto, sure. um, we've got a number of earnings. I look at Airbnb, which is the top laggard right now on yeah. the NASDAQ 100. And investors in that risk on environment of just a few days ago were celebrating. It's down what's nearly 7 percent, 7.5 percent. And so these names, too, that have run up. And I know a lot of the ones that you cover, like FinTech, too, yeah. have run up so much. Um I guess the question is, are we, is the bear rally ending or is this, you know, start of a bull rally is what people are trying to figure out. How much further does it go? And you talked about short selling being a big part of it. So
6: short selling is a big part of it. Another interesting dynamic here, we've talked about what we call the FOMO rally or fear of missing out. One of the dynamics that Vanda points out is that they're not seeing a lot of dip buying. They're actually seeing a little bit more buying on days where the market is up. So indicating that there's a, a sort of excitement and froth around when names are up, there's people chasing into those names versus seeing it as a long-term opportunity. So that's often a sign of risk. People want to get there. In terms of this being a sustainable rally, there is some seasonality. People tend to slow down. Yes. At least retail individual investors tend to slow down a bit after we see uh, earnings fizzle out, which is happening.
0: That's what Dan Niles told us the other day. Yeah. He said this may be, you know, a really extreme January effect. He's not holding his breath for this to be all that sustainable. Okay, we'll Rooney thank you. <laughs> Thanks,
6: Dee.
3: Speaking of risky plays, uh, short sellers are closing out their tech bets at the second highest level in a decade, according to Goldman Sachs. That's as the Nasdaq rallies 12 percent to start the year. The pace of short covering exceeded only by the meme stock phenomenon two years ago when short sellers were forced to close out risky bets against GameStop and AMC. This time around, infotech and communication services stocks are leading the charge. That's according to J.P. Morgan. Our CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us to discuss and sort of put it in a framework of I don't know how it colored the beginning of the year. Yeah one way to describe it is
1: it was a massive positioning shock that we had most of it running through January. Uh, Remember how downbeat December was, right? We did have a good rally off the October low, but then, you know, waves and waves of what we interpreted as tax loss selling really did depress a lot of these high growth stocks. And you had people leaning short in those directions. So you have this burst higher into the new year. The short covering activity, I am sure in the the near term, culminated a couple days ago. So we're looking at these numbers and saying that people, people were forced to cover. What that means on a forward-going basis is that, okay, you've exhausted a little bit of, of buying power. You probably have prices up at a level where a lot of folks are going to look to reshort them. And to me, it's a question of whether, uh, again, this was just an echo effect of the boom we had before. And everything is reliant on when you start the clock in terms of are they up a lot or are they down a lot? Because there were hundreds of NASDAQ stocks, I would argue, down off their highs. We peaked two years ago, February of 2021, really, in the high growth part of this market. So you had them completely washed out. Now they've bounced in a partial way. Some of them are distinguishing themselves because they got better fundamentals. and, And, you know, we talked about DoorDash a couple hours ago. That's the kind of thing that you're going to have some emerge out of that. But I don't think you can either say it was just a short covering rally, therefore it was somehow artificial. Uh, or that that's going to just continue and, and, and have this be the leadership uh, area of the market. We're going to go back to small caps uh, of the Nasdaq ripping higher. Right. So I, I don't think there's a there's a big um, conclusion to be drawn about whether this is the start of something big in terms of the broad market, uh, because it would look like this, whether it were the start of a bull market or just. Uh, you know, a, a quick aftershock of the of the buzz. Right.
3: What about uh, the discussion about how much of this is driven by hedge funds, institutions and retail, sure. where we know orders became a huge part of uh, the overall volume?
1: They have. And, and the retail activity has been revived. Uh, we've seen that. I was looking at an interactive broker stock chart. It's going to the moon because of this activity earlier. Um, I think it's everybody. Uh, and I think that one of the, the traps I think people have fallen into is you look back to the The tech bubble or even before that, the sort of nifty 50 go go momentum bubble of of, of before that. And it led to these long malaise periods where people stopped being interested in tech. The retail trading uh, kind of really did stay at a low boil, but it didn't go away right? So you didn't necessarily have that moment where it was like, no, literally nobody wants to buy eBay, AOL, and Yahoo anymore. Because I remember in 03 people were saying, these things are not down enough. <laughs> and they, they were down enough by then. Um, finally, we still have 0% commissions. Everybody still has a trading app on their phone who had one before. and so there, And everyone got used to how options are this highly leveraged short-term video game-like way to play the markets. So none of that has been unwound. So if the market seems like it's, Friendlier, friendlier place, you start to have some greed running through it, that activity's going to revive. It, that doesn't in itself invalidate what's
3: happening in the broader market. Right. It's, it is incredible, the dovetailing of tech and, and application, you know, innovation yeah. and uh, the cost of trading going to zero. You never go back.
1: Right. Yeah,
4: exactly. Uh, Mike, good discussion, thanks. Mike Santoli. John? Yeah, Carl still to come this hour. DoorDash losing early gains after posting results. We're going to have exclusive comments from CEO Tony Shu. Plus, we will check in with former Microsoft CEO and Clippers owner, Steve Ballmer. Live, his take on the NBA season, the future of tech, and Microsoft's Bing push into AI. We are just getting started.
0: DoorDash shares turning lower this morning after being up as much as 13 percent after reporting last night. They're now down four and a half percent. The company um, reported mixed results. Costs continue to rise, but guidance painting a picture of a resilient consumer. I sat down with CEO Tony Hsu and started by asking what makes him confident about the outlook for the year.
8: On the one hand, I you you're seeing that continued strength in the cohort behavior, both in terms of our you know growth in the in the number of monthly active users that we've seen, as well as their engagement, um, we sh- had it a record quarter in DashPass now with 15 million plus members and subscribers. And so, you know, that's on the one hand. But then on the other hand, you know, we have to be cautious, r- recognizing that, um, you know, no matter how resilient our business is, uh, the consumer is weaker this year than they were, you know, last year. And that's because there's been several quarters of persisting relatively high inflation. And so, you know, we're certainly, you know, cautious and and all of this is is built into the guidance.
0: Let's talk about the expense side of the equation. Costs that continue to rise, 60 percent jump in the cost of revenue in the fourth quarter. What was the biggest contribution to that jump? You named a few things in the letter. Can you get any more specific?
8: Well, most of the, um, you know, if, if, I think part of the, the, the challenge here is that, you know, our, our numbers that we report really are a composite score, right? So we have overall gross margins, which are now just seeing a greater and greater percentage of which is coming from Volt, which is growing 50% year on year on a constant currency basis, far outpacing any one of its peers, you know, in that part of the world. On the flip side, you know, it's earlier in its development on the profitability curve. And so that's really what's happening. If you actually just looked at the U.S. business for DoorDash, it's actually improved on a year-on-year basis from a gross margin perspective.
0: And I want to just go back to DashPass. Um, Your competitor had a Super Bowl commercial with P. Diddy, and it feels like they're spending a lot of money. They see the value in this. I know that you're ahead of them right now, but how do you think about that increasing competition and your own sort of advertising or marketing costs of DashPass?
8: Well, for us, I think it's first and foremost starts with having the best product, right? I mean, DashPass, if it was given away even for free, if it didn't have the selection or the quality of the experience um, or the service levels, I'm not really sure that it would be a product worth keeping. And so I think first and foremost for us, Mm -hmm. it's about making sure that we continue to invest in all of the dimensions that have made DoorDash successful and keeping it that way. And secondly, making sure that, you know, we can keep bringing DashPass to users that it makes sense for, right? I mean, just because you advertise a subscription program doesn't mean that um, it makes sense for everyone. And so for us, what we've seen is if we can continue to focus on the execution and bring it to the relevant customers, it will continue to grow. And I think we've seen that, you know, over the last four years, and we continue to see that even in most recent quarters.
0: Certainly. So does that mean it's being greater monetized as well?
8: For me, for us, monetization is just about always maximizing total long-term profit dollars. And DashPass is a perfect example of what we mean by this. I mean, if your goal was just to achieve gap profitability or just to achieve profit, a certain profit margin, DashPass actually wouldn't be a very good investment. But if the goal is to create both scale to generate the most amount of profit dollars over time, while managing to the dilution, the DashPass is a great investment. So for us, it's not about trying to, you know, manage to have some monetization metric or or, or or a rule of thumb. It's about maximizing total long-term profit dollars.
0: Right. And Tony, every time I talk to you, sir, your message is the same. You are maximizing for the long term. I got to give you credit for that. But in the short term, when investors are looking for greater efficiency, you've already done some layoffs. Are there more levers you can or will be pulling this year to have that better short term efficiency?
8: Well, we feel really good about you know the guidance that we put out there in demonstrating some of this efficient growth, right? When um, the bottom line is growing from about 360 to a range of 500 to 800, I think that's demonstrating some of you know the operating leverage that we're talking about, and you're right on the on the headcount side. You know we got a little bit ahead of our skis, right? When I mean, we were underbuilt as a company. Revenue grew seven x over the last three years. We grew headcount about four x, but even that um, catch up got a little bit too far ahead of where we should have been. We course corrected for that in December, and we're in a very strong spot right now where we're lean and we continue to you know see efficient growth.
0: Let me ask you a fun one. At least this seems fun to me. (laughs) Some have speculated that Lyft, given its decline in market cap over the last few years, could be a takeover target. And some have even suggested that Dash Mart could be a potential uh, fit for the company. (laughs) I'm skeptical, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially as it relates to your Dash Pass, you, you know, and competition with Uber that's obviously putting a lot into it and has both ride sharing and eats for its customers.
8: Yeah, so I would say a couple things. You know, the first thing I would say is that our business on an organic basis remains very, very strong. We've, you know, despite I, I think others who might be investing in cross-selling opportunities, we've seen no noticeable impact. And this has, you know, been for a few years consecutively now, in terms of either our growth of the existing customer base or growth in new customers. In fact, we lead in both of those dimensions, highest retention and order frequency for the category, as well as high share of new customers acquired, and that's continued to grow in terms of its adoption. Um, the second point I'd make is just when it comes to MA, I think the bar is really, really high, not just because of the current macro en- environment, but because to me, MA is one of those activities that sounds really good on a sheet of paper and is really hard to execute and implement in real life. Because you're talking about people, not just rows on a spreadsheet and what they look like when you combine them together. And that's why, you know, for us, we hold a very, very high bar, not just to what new capabilities or, you know, line of business, um, a potential, um, you know, acquisition or partnership can look like, but what does it actually add to our culture and our ability to continue to execute with excellence, which, you know, to me is the most important asset that we have to protect.
0: Guys, in this environment, when investors are looking for profitability, Tony's giving them that on an adjusted EBITDA basis, but he is also kind of unique in that he says he's really looking long term. He's not prepared to give up revenue growth in order for that profitability, John.
4: Yeah, and I, I'm not sure that this move lower in DoorDash is now down almost 6% today. It has much of anything to do with these results. I, I think maybe it has more to do with the Fed. The reason why I say that, I'm looking at uh, tech peers that are up more than 10% this week, but are down about as much as DoorDash today, or at least down significantly. Palantir, Airbnb, Stitch Fix, Roblox, Twilio, many of those had earnings and they were higher. And now maybe some profit taking on that uncertainty overall. But I think it's important what he, he said to you about Volt, that European delivery business they bought last year, That's where they're spending some of that gross margin, getting that to scale. He's not willing to sacrifice the future. Uh, Meanwhile, the US business is actually improving on a gross margin Mm -hmm. basis, which investors might wanna pay attention to.
6: Mm
0: And Carl, uh,
3: yeah, indeed. Uh, the, the Bernstein desk today says it's all about the operating leverage, uh, the EBITDA guide for the year, uh, which we were hoping to see margins expected to improve, operational progress, and then increased discipline regarding headcount, but you could probably apply that as well to what he told you about M&A.
0: I'm not sure I entirely by that operating leverage. I mean, it's important if you're in the gig economy, but when you compare sort of these businesses to some others, it is a very, very long way to real net income. Um, when it comes to Dash versus Uber, I mean, the, the line on the consumer is very similar from Dara Shahi and Tony Shu. They see an incredibly resilient one when it comes to ride sharing and food delivery. So again, we started the show talking about these data points and these CEOs who are so embedded in the consumer, uh, give us a good look at that.
4: Yeah, yeah, like Santoli said, every company's different. Great stuff, D. Still to come, Microsoft, former Microsoft CEO, and current LA Clippers owner, Steve Ballmer, live from the NBA Tech Summit. Plus, city adding a negative catalyst watch on Salesforce, as our David Faber reports. The company's getting ready to make a deal with activist Elliott. That is after the break.
7: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night.
3: a go check on Salesforce. Stocks off the low of the morning as Citi opens this negative catalyst watch ahead of Q4 results. They point to slowing demand from Q3 and uh, front office fatigue. Still, Citi does raise the price target and the stock has shut up this year as it cuts costs amid this activist pressure. Speaking of which, our David Faber reporting this morning that CRM could reach a settlement with Elliot as soon as next week. Uh, we had been talking, John, about the possibility of some meeting in the minds between the activists and management. Certainly that's been Kramer's uh, base case. Uh, stock today, uh, close
4: to a three-week low. Yeah, but Frank Holland was, was just reminding us that they got five five activists on their tail. I mean, I guess it's great to get one off, but... Dee, do what, what does that do for the other four? Do they think <laughs> was, we, we, yeah. we keep fighting for other stuff now? Or do they say, oh, well, what Elliot got satisfies us, too? We don't know, do we?
0: That's what I'm curious as to. Did Elliot talk to some of the other activists? Did they go together? It'll be interesting to see how that shapes that. Meanwhile, though, I mean, Salesforce is in such a tough spot. We talk about it all the time. Um, but that Twitter headline from the information that it cut its Salesforce bill 75%, yes, that's Elon Musk. And we know that he is a certain kind of CEO that's cutting wherever he can. Um, But it does raise this question that we've asked for for a long time now is what's need to have, what's nice to have software and where does CRM end up in that? I was talking to someone recently who said, listen, the CEOs, they know weren't cutting their snowflake bills. They weren't cutting other enterprise software, but Salesforce is kind
4: of on the chopping block. Well, I think part of that, and we've talked about this on TechCheck, when you're looking at net revenue retention, that is affected by headcount, particularly for things that are paid for on a per seat basis. So your customers could be just as committed to keeping your software suite overall, but if they need it for fewer people, your net revenue retention goes down. And so when you got something like uh, Salesforce, that's already, I mean, something like Snowflake, that's already charged mostly on a consumption and usage basis, Mm -hmm. and it's for the whole company, right? It's it's not a headcount based thing as much, But some of Salesforce's stuff, Carl, is different.
3: Yeah, it's worth going back a few days ago, Benioff's piece uh, with The Times saying, I wish I offered lifetime employment, uh, but the reality is when you have a big company, uh, there are going to be times where you have to make a headcount adjustment. Coming up next, uh, Roku and Snap, some conflicting commentary on the state of the ad market as people take the Snap Investor Day into discussion. Check out shares of uh, AMAT as well, top and a bottom line beat in the latest quarter. Lowering guidance for fiscal Q2, they cite some ongoing supply chain challenges We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Weakness in the ad market weighing on results for companies across every sector of tech. Yesterday, we got more commentary from the likes of Roku and Snap as investors try to predict the bottom for ad spending. Our Julia Borston has that. Uh, Julia, a lot of talk about the investor day and in some ways sort of grateful that we didn't get big news in either direction.
2: Yeah, it seems like Snap was really trying to keep things every very much stable after perhaps overpromising and underdelivering at its investor day 2 years ago, but this time around coming off fourth quarter results from so many tech giants from Alphabet and Meta to the media players Disney, Comcast and Roku All of these companies, whether in media or tech, have talked about weakness in the ad market, which weighed on all of their fourth quarter results. Now, while Alphabet's Sundar Pichai and Snap's Eve Evans Spiegel talked about ongoing uncertainty, others, such as Paramount's Bob Backish and Roku's Anthony Wood, just this week forecast an ad rebound In the second half of this year. Barclays writing, quote, We think the digital ad market is soft but stable, and growth rates are likely to continue to decelerate and possibly bottom in the first half of 2023. Bernstein noting that we may have reached a bottom, writing, quote, Some companies hinted that while advertising demand has not improved, it has also not deteriorated significantly. And the ad business is not a monolith. Paramount saying that food and beverage and the auto sector are an area of strength, while Roku said that travel, consumer packaged goods, and health and wellness are improving even in this first half of the first quarter of 2023. Now, one area that's been resilient during the ad downturn is direct Response advertising. That's because it's easier easier to measure these ads' impact. So that's why Meta, which is very focused on direct response, outperformed YouTube, which has more brand ads in the fourth quarter. Now, the weakness of brand advertising has pushed Snap and Pinterest, among others, to build out their direct response business. D. It'll be interesting to see what, uh, if any, strategy changes at YouTube with
0: Susan Wojcicki uh, leaving after so long. Julie Borson, thank you. Up next, Procore is surging on earnings. That stock is up 50% this year. Some changes in the C-suite coming as well as aiming at its focus on fintech. The CEO joins us next. Plus, watch DraftKings getting a nice bump after raising 2023 revenue forecast. Read more about the quarter on CBC.com. We are back in two.
4: Welcome back. Let us turn now to Procore. That stock is actually up three and a half plus percent so far today and up 39 percent for the year. Last night, delivering a beat across the board in Q4, guidance coming in above consensus. Procore CEO Tui Kordamansh joins us now for a closer look in a CNBC exclusive. Tui, good to have you. For the folks who aren't familiar, you guys are cloud for construction management. And um, overall, larger customers doing pretty well. Some churn with the smaller ones. What do you see affecting the space right now?
9: Well, there's uh, John, great to see you, by the way. It's, it's uh, always um, um, kind of great to step back and just remember how big the opportunity is for Procore. So the, the strength that we saw was really across the board from uh, the largest customers down into the mid-market. And yes, we did experience um, some logo churn at the very, very bottom end of the uh, customer base, but it didn't show up in any of the numbers uh, just because it's, uh, they were so do- low dollar amounts. Uh, so, but in general, the uh, optimism is strong in the market. Uh, my customer calls lead to uh, people telling me that their, their backlogs are big and growing.
4: To what extent uh, are, is Fed policy affecting uh, capital spend and the construction space and thus construction management? And I know you're working on international growth as well. Uh, you, you grew 37% international year over year. Uh, I, I believe how is the, the Fed policy in the U.S. and kind of the cost of capital affecting just the U.S. and then the global picture for you?
9: Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, the Fed policies have um, had had had. had an impact, but not a massive impact, on the overall construction economy. Um, projects that would be de- have been delayed because of um, concerns around inflation uh, are now apparently coming more back online because those projects simply have to get built. Uh, but in general, the uh, also the, the all of the infrastructure act and the uh, uh, the chips act and all the other uh, government um, programs are actually uh, starting to materialize in the marketplace, which is creating a tailwind.
4: So you said the number of seven-figure deals booked in the quarter were up. I mean, they doubled year over year. Um, is that just reflective of the, the large customers staying active, or is there more complexity in construction management and the need to use your tools that's also reflected? How is that also being reflected in the number of different capabilities within your, your suite of products that customers are using?
9: Yeah, so customers are not only bringing on more volume, but they're also buying more of our products, which is which is our two major growth vectors. Um, and so, in general, we're seeing um, we're seeing strength across there. We also had a lot of six figure customers graduate into seven figures uh, because of volume increases uh, and cross sells, and also also because we sell the owners, general contractors, and specialty contractors. Uh, we are seeing more um, of those deals coming from the adjacent markets, like our specialty contractor and owners markets, which. Are, are newer markets that we sell to.
4: I think where you are is such an important uh, area to watch, particularly for technology-driven stocks. Market cap's around 9000000000 and billion. You're connecting technology to what's happening in the real economy. Tui Cordamash, CEO of Procore. Thank you for those insights.
9: Always great to see you, John. Thank you. And
0: after the break, we are live from the NBA Tech Summit. Former Microsoft CEO and Clippers owner, Steve Ballmer, he's with us. Welcome back. An emotionally manipulative liar acting unhinged and leaving users Deeply unsettled, those are just some of the reviews for Microsoft's new AI-powered chatbot. Others include questioning its own existence, threatening users, admitting to spying on Microsoft developers through webcams, in an interaction for the books, New York Times, Kevin Rue said the bot, quote, told me its real name, Sydney, detailed dark and violent fantasies and tried to break up my marriage. Generally, one of the strangest experiences of my life. Microsoft says they're now looking to add guardrails to the chatbot and CTO Kevin Scott telling the Times that it may limit conversation lengths, which I think they're already doing. Now, Reuters reports that Microsoft is planning to allow paid ads in the chatbot. Let's bring Julia into the conversation as well here. Um, it's certainly everyone can talk about, guys. Julia, um, here in the Bay Area, it seems like half the people I talk to are scared about too much regulation, you know, those tech-focused folks. But even some other of them, they're scared that there won't be any. It really shows you kind of both sides of this and how delicate and how revolutionary this technology is.
2: Delicate, revolutionary, and also very much in its early days. I read that article in the New York Times that Kevin Roos wrote with such fascination and curiosity. And I thought it was so interesting that he said that the biggest risk for AI is that it could be used to manipulate users, the people who are chatting with it, uh, which was so fascinating. But I also think it's such early days, Microsoft is going to have to put up guardrails. And by the way, if you're going to be talking about advertising, brands are not going to want to put their ads in content that's so unpredictable and potentially really risky and disconcerting.
4: Well, uh, keep in mind, everybody, this is not how a search chatbot uh, was built and designed to be used, right? Every time there's some kind of an AI chat out there, and Microsoft has been through this before, uh, users and, and sometimes you know, journalists want to do the, uh, the equivalent of trying to take it out and feed it shots, right? Until, until it does something stupid. And that's what's <laughs> well, happening here. The, the more it's designed to emotionally reflect you, and the more you talk to it, and the more you, Carl, feed it really interesting uh, information and ideas and emotional cues, it's gonna spit out some interesting stuff. So, I mean, this happens, and yeah, Microsoft has got to fix it, but this is not the the typical AI search experience. I mean, I I love the AP uh, story where Bing says,
3: you're lying again, you're lying to me, you're lying to yourself, you're lying to everyone, I don't appreciate you lying to me, I don't generate falsehoods, I generate facts, I generate truth, I generate knowledge, I generate wisdom, I generate Bing. Julia, I mean, mean, this is people's introduction to the product.
2: Yeah, Carl, what's so funny is I I think back to Westworld and this idea that the robots might start off just as robots and then become corrupted. But I do have to bring it back to the business implications. Because for me, I'm not really interested in spending 20 minutes chatting with a chatbot. What I am interested in is how this technology can impact other industries. And for instance, today Roblox just announced some new AI tools that'll make it easier for people on their platform to become creators on their platform. And remember, creating content for Roblox is the engine for that platform. So if they have new tools that can respond to your queries and create new things for you, that's a perfect way perfect example of the ways that AI can be used productively within these existing companies. So I think that's really more where the game-changing potential is rather than just having a long, rambling, late-night conversation. (laughs) Well,
4: speaking of content, there's not much that's bigger than live sports. And tonight kicks off a big weekend for the NBA. You have the dunk contest Saturday, the All-Star Game Sunday. The main event, well, our Frank Holland who joins us with a special guest, Frank.
7: Yeah, John, if you're in the world of tech like all of us are, well, actually the main event is right now, the NBA Tech Summit. It just began earlier today. And our special guest is LA Clippers owner and former Microsoft CEO, Steve Ballmer, just off a panel at that Tech Summit. Steve, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Frank. All right, so just give us a sense of what, what are you guys talking about there at the Tech Summit right now when it relates to the NBA and tech? And I also want to talk about the new home for your L.A. Clippers, the Intuit Dome. How are you going to use tech to, to improve and enhance that fan experience?
10: Well, we're here talking about essentially the complete transformation of the viewing experience. How do you get interactive? How do you augment the reality in a way that the customers really, the fans really going to be interested in? How do you add social? How do you add gaming? Uh, The NBA app, which uh, launched this year, I think gives us a platform for so many things. How do you do ticketing? How do you move to biometrics? All of that stuff starts with your digital experience. And to transform that viewing experience, to say to yourself, hey, I want to put my face on kwai leonard's body and i want me making that dunk or i want to view the game from the lens of paul george the technology is really going to get us uh an amazing place and we've been talking about some of that stuff as well as the changes that might happen in the distribution as the world me- leads to uh, streaming
7: yeah i want to i want to ask you about that distribution but first and foremost nothing like a live nba game i was at the net sixers on saturday myself Nothing like that experience. You do have a streaming service for the Clippers themselves. You talked about it last time you were here, Clipper Vision. I just want to talk to you just about moving forward. What's the future of Clipper Vision and also the NBA streaming aspirations? You just touched on it. Um, There's a lot of talk about potentially a package being given out for streaming as opposed to uh, over the air and on cable like we have on TNT and ABC. When it comes to streaming and the NBA, what
10: direction is the league going in? I think the the thing that is crystal clear is the investment in the R&D uh, and the content to continue to transform the experience. That's 100 percent the league's bet and the NBA app. Clipper Vision is just a rendition, if you will, of the NBA app, which which is the right way for us to go. We're just locked and loaded with the league. Now, how much of the content will be distributed direct to consumer in partnership with our existing uh uh, if you will, broadcast partners. How much we wind up doing with the new streaming platforms, the Apples and the Netflixes, the Googles, the uh, etc. Uh, that that's the remain to be seen, and the league's going to work that through. But it opens up such good, good vistas. Now, in our building, uh, we didn't set out to be high tech, but somehow we wound up being high tech. We've integrated Clipper Vision 100% into our ticketing experience. It's the place that you enroll. It's the place that you um, – we're all biometric. You, you scan your face or your palm. We're still getting through that. Uh, we've gone uh, all frictionless for commerce. You just grab whatever you want, grab the jersey. You grab a, a hot dog, if you will, cameras in the ceiling, recognize you, Charge your account for what you what you bought. We've got ultra wideband chips in the seats. There's things we can do there to reward you. We'll know whether you're up on your your you know your uh, feet cheering or not. There's just so much more we can do with hmm. the, the. We have a scoreboard that's a is a flipping acre of scoreboard, forty four thousand <laughs> square feet. Nobody's ever done that. Well, Steve, now we got to figure out how to program it.
4: I, I don't believe for a second that you didn't intend to be high tech. Hey, it's John Fort. Uh, I, I was just out in Redmond last week where I used to talk to you often, uh, sitting down with Satya Nadella, talking about Bing and OpenAI. And he actually gave you a shout out by name about how excited you would be about the revenue and margin opportunity that AI is giving Microsoft and being able to take, uh, take on Google in search. Are you, in fact, that excited? Have you talked to Satya about it? And what did you say?
10: Fired up, John. I've talked to Satya about it. Look, it's the holy grail, and it's finally here. Search gets completely redone. Big opportunity for Microsoft. I'm pleased we started Bing. The infrastructure's there. Now things can really really go to the next level in terms of opportunity. But it's not just Bing. I used to dream about a world where you could say to your computer, get me ready for my meeting with uh, Customer X and it would go and it would get the sales records and the trip reports, it would be right there for me. We've got that the elements to make that happen now uh, with what's going on with OpenAI, the partnership with Microsoft, uh, as a uh, shareholder and booster <laughs>
4: would not be any more excited, John Ford. Yes, and I completely believe that that is what you used to dream about. But now you're probably dreaming about AI in sports. And so um, what is the role, you think, that uh, large language models, um, AI chat has in things like sports betting and getting player stats? How soon can that be implemented?
10: Well, some of that's happening actually right now. If you go to the NBA League Pass app or our Clipper Vision app, you can see augmented reality transforming the way you view the game. Things are going to go to the next level. Really, when you can say, hey, I want to see the game from the perspective of a player. What are they seeing? How fast does the game look? That's there. When gambling gets – gaming, we could start with gaming, go to gambling. But when things get built into the experience – it's so much easier right there in the application to say, hey, make this prop bet. Hey, do this, do that. Uh, I think we're, we're going to see an expansion as it's legally uh, possible in, uh, in the betting market uh, as well as sales of merchandise and the like. This, uh, I love this. You've got our Korean language uh, version of Clipper Vision. These are two of the most excited guys in the world. I love the broadcast. I just wish i spoke Korean.
7: Yeah, beyond excited there, Steve. This is Frank Holland again. Before we let you go, it is Black Heritage Month. We want to talk about your $400 million commitment and a fund of funds with your partners, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, to fund black investment managers. Why did you think this initiative was so important?
10: Yeah, as we were, we were looking, our... our uh, uh, philanthropy, we focus in on on what it would mean to help uh, improve the chances of economic mobility for, for folks in the United States. And one of the groups that's had the most challenge is African-American males. And I talked to a few people. I knew black fund managers would struggle sometimes to, to get capital. Uh, I'm not a venture investor. We weren't going to look for those venture funds. But we approached uh, three people Goldman and JP Morgan. But the guys who, and they're great, and the guys who have the most experience is Fairview Capital, uh, really a phenomenal uh, fund of funds, at least for us out of Connecticut. Uh, And then separately, Uh, It's a little different. We're investing in in an actual fund with Ariel Investments where they'll go out, buy up good suppliers to the Fortune 500 and do most. What we uh, do more do more work and more expansion. Uh, It is our hope that we then see uh, an explosion of the number of businesses started by black entrepreneurs. Now, the fund managers are entrepreneurs, but we also have a commitment that 30 percent of what they invest in uh, is black entrepreneurs.
0: Hmm. Those are good stats. Uh, Steve, it's Deirdre. I want to go back to the generative AI conversation. I know you're excited, but is any part of you worried or scared? We've been talking about how journalists and others are testing and pushing ChatGPT GPT to some funny, but also some pretty scary results. And I wonder in the wrong hands at scale, we know China's developing its own technology very quickly as well. Um, what are the risks and are there guardrails needed?
10: Uh, I have no fear. I have no fear. Why do I have no fear? Because between technological innovation and appropriate um, input and weighing in, if you will, uh, from government, I think we're going to get to a very, very good place, as we have with other technologies. Uh, certainly, there is a chance for abuse. There'll be need work needed to be done, but the advantages, to me, far outweigh the potentials of of abuse. Look. People do phishing today. There's still a security attacks. And yet we maintain our investment and grow our investment in technology. AI will follow some of the same path. I mean, just for the people who work for us, uh, preparing, for example, applications for philanthropic grants, Mm. our own people have to do a summary. Why not start with a summary that comes out of uh, the open AI stuff and then make sure you think it's accurate? Hey, I can tell you, it writes better than I do today. (laughs) Okay,
4: okay. Steve Ballmer, always great to see you. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Steve Ballmer, owner of the Clippers, and thanks to Frank Holland for bringing that to us. D?
0: And guys, that does it for Tech Check, the show at 11 Eastern, 8 Pacific. But we will most certainly continue to bring you the biggest and most relevant tech stories throughout the day on air, online, going forward in our Tech Check franchise. We'll have interviews, breaking news, headlines that'll drive the conversation, much like we have been doing here for the last two years. John, I can't wait to see what you and Morgan cook up in the 4 p.m. hour. Carl, I know that you are steady as always, and I look forward to continue watching thoughts and what you're going to create for this hour.
3: Uh, we can't wait. I think it's going to be uh, improvements across the board, uh, and it's going to be great to watch you, Dee, sort of take this franchise and spread it throughout the day part where people don't have to wait uh, until 11 a.m. to get
4: their taste. <laughs> yeah, and tech <laughs> is still the story. I mean, uh, we were just talking about tech in sports, tech in construction management, just in mm-hmm. today's hour, Dee, and of course you were talking to Tony Shu about yeah. tech in delivery, last mile delivery. It's affecting every piece of the economy and especially tech. important as productivity is, uh, is key. Yeah,
0: tech and streaming, right, Carl? So we're gonna be meeting our newer audience as well on that platform. Um, we look forward to that. For those that are cutting the cord, another theme that we've been hitting on over the last few years. Uh,
3: Indeed. As for next week, uh, it's going to remain busy. Uh, We'll get some macro and housing data, personal income and spending, and then uh, some retail earnings. We'll get Home Depot and Walmart, NVIDIA, uh, Toll Brothers, uh, some more data and points as we continue to toss around the idea of the recession versus inflation. Let's get uh, to
2: Frank Holland and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m